Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lothar and Louis behaved peacefully, keeping themselves within the boundaries of their own realms. Charles traveled about in Aquitaine. While he was still based there, the Breton Nomino and Lambert, who had recently defected from their allegiance to Charles, slew Reynald, Duke of Nantes, and took large numbers of prisoners. So many and such great disasters followed, while brigands ravaged everything everywhere, that people in many areas throughout Gaul were reduced to eating earth, mixed with a little bit of flour and made into a sort of bread. It was a crying shame, no worse, a most execrable crime that there was plenty of fodder for the horses of those brigands, while human beings were short even of tiny crusts of earth and flour mixture. From the Annals of Saint-Bertin, translated by Janet L. Nelson. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 16. Hey, guy! In the past few episodes, we drew our look at the geography of Europe to a close, but that does not mean we are done with the background. Oh, no. If in the past we've been dealing with the society of the Middle Ages in as broad a way as possible, in the next few episodes I want to try and make things as specific as possible. To put that another way... I want to try to really humanize the topics we've been covering by focusing on specific individuals. This is also going to be a fairly short episode, something that was necessitated by difficulties in getting my hands on some of the primary source material. But this will also be something of a exciting experiment. It might make my workflow better to have shorter episodes, and so let's see how this goes, and let me know if you like it. So, today I'm going to kick off the effort to humanize the Middle Ages by bringing our focus to nearly as specific a point as, as possible. I want to talk about one man, or at least one family, and how they dealt with the unraveling of the Carolingian social order. The hero of our story is known to history as Guy III of Spolento, and his family, the Gideshi. This name is a somewhat anachronistic historical convention used to describe a clan that became important in Italy. But, as we have already discussed in this show, the nobility of Italy during the decline of the Carolingian Empire was Frankish or Lombard, not Roman. So they would not have called themselves the Gideshi, at least not at this point, and not only because no one had family names in the Middle Ages. 
If they were to give themselves a family name, they might have focused on a major family member, but they would have used a northern French or Germanic pronunciation, like Guy or Guido. Basically, both different versions of the same name. But then we really can't be sure how they would or wouldn't have pronounced it, as they were probably illiterate for at least the first few generations. So, in the absence of anything else, I'm going to continue accepted historical practice and refer to the collective family as the Gideshi, and refer to individuals using the northern old French pronunciation, Guy. Podcast footnote. The name Guy would end up entering England via the Norman invasion, as the Normans spoke Old French. The name Guy became relatively common amongst the English gentry, but it was most famously given to a certain Guy Fawkes, whose gunpowder treason and plot is commemorated every year by the creation and burning of ugly effigies. It became an insult to call someone Guy, as it was meant to imply that that person was as ugly as one of the effigies, and in such a sense it moved to the United States. But in the cynical, aggressive world of old New York, the name took on a different meaning. Imagine, if you will, a bunch of blue-collar stiffs down at the docks. They see a friend and are happy to see him. But you can't just say, Steve, it's so good to see you. Your presence makes our life more full. That would be lame. So instead, they said, hey, guy, look at you all covered in sewage. We were just going to go grab a sub at Tony's Deli. You can join us if you promise not to smell up the place. Laughs all around, backs are clapped, and the witty repartee moves to another venue. Well, gradually through interactions like this, the word Guy stopped being a reference to Guy Fawkes, or his effigies, and became a term of endearment used to refer to just any male person. Now it's shifting again as the gendered nature of the word begins to fall away. And so if you grew up in the New York metro area, as I did, the word guys has become a way to address a collective group. Hey you guys, wanna go get a slice? And all this because Mrs. Fox named her kid Guy instead of Jim. End podcast footnote. At any rate, the Gideshi family. The Gideshi family were Frankish nobles originally from somewhere east of the Rhine. They enter the history books when their ancestor, Guy of Nantes, was appointed as the warden of the Breton March upon the death of Roland, the previous inhabitant of that post. As Roland was supposedly Charlemagne's right-hand Guy, we could easily read way too much into this appointment and assume that Guy of Nantes was also a favorite. This would likely overstate the case, but undoubtedly the Breton March was a key assignment. The March was the flat area, inland from the Breton Peninsula proper, centered on the city of Nantes. Contrary to official Frankish court propaganda, the Franks never really did subdue the Bretons, and raids and counter-raids were a regular feature of this region for centuries. Having talented commanders with the emperor's ear, ruling over regions along such open borders, was a key part of the Carolingian security policy. Raids were followed up by counter-raids, and occasionally an imperial army would pay the region a visit to beat down the Bretons, but the Bretons proved impossible to subdue completely. The country was rugged, and the tribes disorganized, so victories over one tribe did not mean the region quieted down. The flip side of this was that the Bretons were always disorganized, and thus presented less of a threat. In fact, when the Bretons did try to consolidate, as they did early in the reign of Lambert I, son of Guy, uh, efforts were made to prevent a successful consolidation. In that early instance, the self-proclaimed king of the Bretons was assassinated by agents of the Gideshi family. It's probable that the imperial court was quite happy with the situation. The Bretons posed no real risk to the empire, especially when they were so divided, 
and the cost of completely consolidating the region was probably felt not to be worth the candle. At the same time, the region was fairly close to the Frankish heartland of northern Francia, and so a strong guard was needed, which suited the Gadeshi family as well because they got a job. Our story really begins with Lambert I of Nantes, eldest son of Guy of Nantes. If not the right-hand man of the emperor, Lambert was certainly favored by the court and had, it can probably said, a fair share of ambition. After the death of his first wife, Lambert seems to have attempted to solidify his place in court by marrying the daughter of Pepin, Charlemagne's eldest surviving son and heir to the throne. Unfortunately, Pepin would die in the marshes outside Venice, allowing the inheritance of the empire to fall into the hands of Louis the Pious. Still, the Gadeshi family had married into the royal clan, and that was not nothing. Unfortunately, the arrival of Louis the Pious meant new policies and new personalities for the Gadeshi clan to get to know and work with. Though Lambert was, early on, one of Louis's keenest supporters, being one of the people that Louis sent ahead to make sure that his ascension to the throne would be met without opposition, the early events of Louis's reign seem to have distanced the Gadeshi from the court. The first thing Louis the Pious did upon taking the throne was to purge the court of immoral or disreputable elements. This may be so, but we are specifically told that he sent away various uncles, cousins, and old advisors. These were people who were part of the Carolingian clan, power brokers in their own right who helped steer the ship of state during his father's waning years. The chroniclers clearly felt that this was a much-needed house-cleaning, and maybe these men and women had been taking advantage of a weakening old man. Or Louis may have simply felt that these people presented a threat to his authority, a reminder that he was a new young king, and maybe not to be taken seriously. That said, there may have been a feeling that Louis was treating these loyal retainers badly, or even that he was doing a bad job of rewarding people who had accepted his claim to the throne without incident. The Gadeshi may have been caught up in this purge, I have no specific evidence one way or the other, but their feelings about Louis may have been compounded by policy decisions Louis made regarding the Bretons. Louis made several attempts to pacify the Bretons, but was never able to do so militarily. No big deal there, no one had, but then Louis found what he thought was a political solution to the problem. The Bretons were a tribal people, and no solution to the instability there had proved effective because there was no central structure in Breton society with which to negotiate. So Louis came up with a brilliant plan. He would help one of the Breton chiefs consolidate power and become the real king of the Bretons, and then make peace with that new king. This idea would create some clear policy problems that the cleverer among you may have already spotted. Be that as it may, there's no specific evidence that the Gadeshi break dates to this point, but the interference in their sphere of influence may not have been viewed favorably, and it's worth considering. Such of the members of the Frankish nobility, who felt disgruntled with Louis, were soon given a clear alternative around whom to gather. Lothair, everyone's favorite bungling prodigal son. Heir apparents always end up attracting people who don't like the policies of the current administration, this is something of a constant in the history of monarchical regimes. But rarely have things turned bad so quickly as they did with Lothair. We have already covered in this show Lothair and his brother's numerous acts of disloyalty, but it's easy to miss in the bare-bones narrative of events that we presented earlier that these men did not act alone. When Lothair broke with his father, people went with him. Among them were the Gadeshi, led by the patriarch of the family, Lambert of Nantes who had had a not inconsiderable role in the accusations against Louis the Pious and Judith the Welf. When the rebellion was crushed, these men faced consequences. Podcast footnote. 
An interesting feature of this time period, in the early Middle Ages, after the rise of Christianity and the fall of the Western Empire, was that at least some of the kings and emperors of this age went to extreme lengths to show clemency, but only in oddly arbitrary circumstances. So this is the generation after Charlemagne slaughtered several thousand Saxon nobles, and in one of the first actions of his reign, Louis feels the need to sentence a traitorous cousin, Berengar, to have his eyes put out rather than to have him executed. And when Berengar dies of his wounds, the chroniclers say that Louis went into public displays of penance and grief. Both before and after this event, Louis led armies in the field, where his orders led directly to the deaths of Christians, by the hundreds if not thousands, but this passes without comment. We might tend to chalk up Louis's actions to the biases of the chroniclers, and the public displays of grief are maybe a bit suspect, but at the same time in Constantinople, we see much the same thing. Eye-gouging was the fashionable way to dispose of enemies when forcing people into a monastery was not considered final enough. Famously, Empress Irene would blind her own son, who proceeded to die from the resulting infection. A few generations later, the fashion had changed, and slitting or possibly removing the person's nose had become the disfigurement method of choice among the more fashionable aspirants to the Eastern throne. In the West, there was a similar trend. After the death of Berengar, Louis did not impose any physical punishment on any of his sons or even other members of the Carolingian clan. It became a feature of the late Carolingian state that rebelling nobles were let off the hook without any physical repercussion, and deposed kings were merely sent to monasteries. Of course, while this Christian clemency was going on, armies were fighting savage battles against each other, and even more prominently, despoiling the countryside. A lovely little phrase that talks about burning, raping, pillaging, and selling people into slavery. I wonder how the Frankish peasant would have felt upon learning that the rebellious lord who had burned down the peasant's village and sold the peasant's entire family into slavery had been punished for his rebellion by being exiled to one of the lord's less desirable lavish country villas. Sort of the Carolingian equivalent of being sent to your room with all your video games, books, and TVs. It's easy to criticize this state of affairs. I think it's worth noting that in England, during this very same time period, the country was awash with civil wars and dynastic insanity. In that country, lords, kings, etc. were regularly and somewhat unceremoniously dispatched by their opponents, but we can say with some confidence that the brutality was serving them no better. Dynastic intrigues continued, the country was aflame, and stability fleeting. So maybe something can be said for Carolingian clemency. Whatever the efficacy of the punishment of the Carolingians, it would survive the fall of the empire. As all the new kings and nobles of the post-Carolingian world were part of the same extended Carolingian clan, they came to share a similar culture, and their respect for the norms of this culture, going so far as to not kill their opponents when they were captured, explains much about the development of chivalry and the rise of the international aristocratic culture of the Middle Ages. End podcast footnote. For Lothair, the punishment that resulted from his failed revolt was exile to his kingdom in Italy. Part of the peace deal worked out between Lothair and his father was that his chief followers were sent into exile with him and were deprived of their previous lands. This was not really so much a punishment as an inducement to keep the peace, as it meant the nobles involved escaped physical punishment while Lothair was able to hold his army together with its officer corps intact. Chief amongst them was Lambert, formerly the Duke of the Breton March. 
Whatever the political purposes behind this agreement, Lambert, his young wife, and their young son Guy would make the march south into Italy, where further adventures awaited them. But we are going to actually take leave of this young family just now, because Lambert had another son, an older son by his first wife. This young man, known to history as Lambert II of Nantes, chose not to head south. The whys of this situation are not clear, but he ended up attached to the court of Charles the Bald, the fourth son of Louis the Pious. Lambert II had quite the exciting life, and will help us fill in some of the holes in the history of Greater France before we move back to looking at Italy. Now, I've made a lot of fun of Charles in previous episodes, but it should be said that when Charles came to the throne, the odds were pretty well stacked against him lasting out a year. His oldest brother, Lothair, was supposed to be his protector, but he was only interested in taking back the entire empire. The third oldest brother, Louis the German, did not want Lothair taking over, but also was not convinced that Charles really deserved an entire third of the empire. The second son, Pepin, had already died by this time, but before he did, he had ruled over an area of western France called Aquitaine, which, as we discussed in episode 3, was a strip of land between the mouth of the Loire and the Pyrenees. This area made up a fairly large portion of Charles the Bald's new kingdom. The nobility of Aquitaine had come to like Pepin, and had elected the sons of Pepin to succeed their father, and just because Louis wanted the land to go to Charles did not mean that they were going to accept it. Thus, at the time of Louis's death, Aquitaine was in open revolt, and that remained the case despite numerous imperial armies sent in that direction. So Charles at this point is facing hostile brothers, two of them, an open revolt by the nobles of a goodly portion of his kingdom, and just for good measure to top everything off, he had a series of rather large Viking raids to deal with as well. It's actually a fair testament to Charles' talent that he managed to last 37 years on the throne at all. Lambert II of Nantes was a loyal and brave supporter of Charles. He served with him in several campaigns, and all he asked in return was one thing, one small thing. He wanted his family's land back. Now, the Dudniks that Louis the Pious had put in charge were still there, and if Charles did give Lambert his family's land back, he would anger these folks. As a result, Charles kind of just didn't get around to Lambert's request. Fed up with waiting, Lambert took the only rational course of action. He went back to the land around Nantes, the land that he had grown up in, except now he was just a man. We may imagine he sadly toured the lands in which he was raised, where he had once been the heir apparent, and saw the so-familiar sights. He went into town and talked with the townspeople, and reminisced about the old times with the good dukes of the past. Then he took out his big bags of money, promised everyone the sky, and raised his banner in revolt. After gathering a respectable force, he further declared his loyalty to the only king in that area with whom he had a good working relationship the Breton king. You see, since Louis the Pious had helped set up the Breton kingdom, the Breton kings had come to notice something odd. The big scary Franks, whom they had been fighting for generations, had gradually fallen to fighting themselves. And now suddenly the Bretons, well, they weren't fighting amongst themselves. Tentatively at first, the Bretons resumed raiding, just little small ones, to see what would happen. And when Viking raids began, the Bretons started signing up and joining in. When Lambert declared himself in revolt from Charles, and loyal to the Breton king, the Breton march simply exploded. A combined Breton, Viking, and Gideshi force stormed across the borders, looting and pillaging. 
In a crucial battle, Lambert's forces showed up just in the nick of time to guarantee victory, and Louis the Pious's appointee as duke was killed in the battle. Nantes was taken and sacked shortly thereafter. Which seems to me like a pretty odd way to show people how much you want to rule them, but there you go. With the city sacked, Lambert was unable to hold his gains as his Viking and Breton allies headed home with their loot. Charles appointed a new duke named Armory, but just because Lambert II had been unable to consolidate his gains did not mean that Charles had any sway either, let alone Armory. The new duke mostly seems to have hung around court, waiting for Charles to do something. With the Breton march overrun, the dukes of the neighboring territories of Maine, Anjou, and Touraine started to feel threatened, and so they formed an alliance against Lambert and the Bretons. They met up in Maine, a county to the east of the Breton march, and had just set off to punish the invaders when Lambert and the Bretons ambushed them and killed all three. Charles' response to this was to awkwardly refuse to deal with the situation for three years, even though three major nobles of his kingdom had just been killed far from the border, he simply had too many other crises to deal with. Finally, in 845, Charles faced up to the situation and recognized Lambert as the legitimate Duke of the March, and Lambert resumed his loyalty to Charles. This lasted for five years, but ultimately Lambert went into revolt again. Charles brought in a full imperial army, installed a garrison in Nantes, and left. The garrison was quickly eliminated, and the new duke captured. The next year, the Bretons and Lambert faced Charles on the open field, and won. This led Charles to sign the Treaty of Angers, formally recognizing that the Breton march was owned by the Bretons themselves. Incidentally, this is why the borders of the modern province of Brittany go so far inland. Lambert, at this point, seems not to have been all that happy taking orders from anyone, having spent most of his life in open revolt, and spent the rest of his life nibbling away at the territories of those on the Frankish side of the border, trying to carve a kingdom out for himself. In one of these efforts, in 852, he was killed in an ambush. With his death, the northern branch of the Gedeshi slipped into the Breton side of history, for which we have far fewer records. More importantly, perhaps, was that Maine, Anjou, and Touraine were now put in the hands of Robert the Strong. These three duchies, surrounding the old Breton March, essentially made Robert the new Breton Marcher Lord, and put a huge swath of northern France under his control. Robert consolidated his rule rapidly and spent the rest of his life defending northern France from the Vikings and the Bretons, during the years when he himself was not going into open revolt against Charles and his son Louis the Stammerer. Lambert III was presumably forced closer and closer into his fealty with the Breton king, when faced with this more consolidated foe. Robert had many children, but two of his sons are important to our story, Odo, the eldest, and Robert Jr. We've actually already sort of met Odo in our story, back in episode 11. Odo was the Count of Paris during the Viking Siege of 885. Odo and the Parisians held out in their island fortress against a huge Viking force, and when things got desperate, Odo took a picked group of men and fought his way out to go seek reinforcements. He alerted Charles the Fat, gathered reinforcements, and then fought his way back into the city. Of course, once Charles arrived, he simply paid the Vikings to leave, which left Odo and the Parisians muttering angrily and glaring in Charles' direction. But this is all getting way ahead of ourselves, and surely Odo has nothing to do with the Gadeshi of Italy. Next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, with the northern line fading into history, we must move south, 
and follow the Gadeshi into the kingdom of Italy, and a duchy called Spolento, which will be their home for the next several generations. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.